Hi, everyone. Welcome to our podcast, Pedagogy Geeks. I'm Arielle Weiss. And I'm Ryan Tusing. I'm a pianist and piano teacher living here in Virginia. And I'm a dancer and an Alexander Technique teacher that's been teaching here in Philadelphia since 1988. We invite you to join us in exploring the hows and whys behind what we teach musicians so that we can promote the integration of wellness and musicianship. We welcome your questions and we hope to inspire your curiosity. We hope to support, encourage, re-examining and uh, rediscovering and bringing embodiment and creativity to our teaching. Today, we have a special guest with us and we're very pleased because this is our very first guest and we'd like to welcome Susan Nowicki to Pedagogy Geeks for today's topic, which is what makes productive practice? Sorry. Susan Nowicki is a faculty member of the Curtis Institute of Music, where she coaches for the Vocal Studies Department. Mrs. Nowicki is in demand for as an educator and clinician for music festivals and competitions. She maintains a private piano studio in Philadelphia and was a faculty member for the Taubman and Galansky Institutes from 1997 through 2005 and has been a piano instructor for the Well-Balanced Pianist since 2003. Welcome, Susan. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you. Um, first, congratulations on the podcast to both of you. And mm -hmm. uh, thank you so much for the opportunity to join me today. Well, we're so pleased to have you here, Susan. And full disclosure, Susan and I have been colleagues at the Curtis Institute of Music for about 25 years. And also, I've been a guest at Susan Nowicki's program, The Well-Balanced Pianist. So I thought full disclosure was in order. Um, let's begin. Let's dive in. But let's dive in by defining what do we mean by productive in the context of practice? So Susan, can I start with you? What is productivity? Productive practice is something I've been interested in a long time. And to me, it's, it's practice that helps you move closer to the results that you want. Um, it requires attention, um, intention, and um, moving out of our comfort zone in a lot of times. Uh, it means having a plan, uh, working the plan, and then evaluating um, on what you've done. Um, since all, all learning is memory, so when we practice, we're, we're trying to install you know, repertoire, technique, and physical movements, all sorts of skills into our long-term memory. And the first thing that came to my mind when you invited me to be a part of this uh, podcast was a book by Anders Ericsson. Here it is. <laughs> it's a book by Anders Ericsson, who was a Swedish psychologist. Um, he passed away in June of 2020. But his interest was in the acquisition of e expertise, which resulted in a 2016 book called Peak, Secrets from the New Science of Expertise. And it's really um, a fascinating book. And his findings show that it isn't the hours spent, but the quality of the practice time that yields results. Um, in the introduction, he describes a great way to think about it. And I'll read that. Um, you wish to climb a mountain. You're not sure how high you want to go. The peak looks an awfully long way off, but you know you want to get higher than you currently are. You could simply take off on whatever path looks promising and hope for the best, but you're probably not going to get very far. Or you could rely on a guide who has been to this peak and knows the best way there. That will guarantee no matter how high you decide to climb, you're doing it in the most efficient, effective way. That best way is deliberate practice. So he calls deliberate uh, mm. practice the same, you know, which is the same, I think, as, as productive practice. And I would recommend this book to anyone uh, with an interest in how we learn or how we develop mastery of any skill. 
So what he's saying is the easiest way to practice is through repetition, right? Uh, which is sort of our standard default. Um, and there's also trial and error, which does work, but is not very efficient. Um, you know, because we're never, we're not identifying the, the problem or breaking things down. You know, many common study habits and um, practice routines, you know, turn out to be counterproductive, like underlining, highlighting, um, cramming, uh, multiple repetitions, you know, it gives you an illusion of, of mastery, but the results don't last. Um, you know, more concrete learning comes from what Erickson calls purposeful or deliberate practice, like self-testing, teaching someone else, um, introducing certain difficulties into practice, uh, mm. alternating the practice of one skill with another, Mm. Um, um, waiting to study new material until you forget it a little bit. Like if you're familiar with Duolingo or Babbel, the language apps, they use that, um, they work on that same principle. They'll introduce a new concept or vocabulary and then they'll delay the review of it until you forgot it and little, until you had a chance to forget huh. it. Interesting. So, um, you know, the inf in other words, like the information is planted in your brain, but it's not accessible. But the frequent review helps to strengthen that path and makes it more accessible. Wow. Well, Susan, I feel like you just mapped out the entire <laughs> podcast. There's so much in what you just offered, which I love. Uh, thank you, Susan, for that robust answer to that question. We are off and running. Ryan, what do you want to chime in? What defines productive for you? Well, I have to agree with everything Susan said, and I also would highly recommend that book. It's excellent. <laughs> I, I think the idea that productive or deliberate practice is, you know, that it has a particular aim, that it has a direction, that we actually have something we're really intending to do other than just sitting there and watching the clock and kind of hoping things happen if we you know, sit here for an hour or whatever the case may be. I think that in and of itself is a really great place to start. The other thing that I would add, and this is something that actually has come up recently in several lessons I was teaching, and it's this idea that when we're practicing and we're trying to determine, okay, how productive am I being? I have been encouraging students to track their attention as they're practicing. Like when you're working on this, do you find that when you get to a certain spot when you're playing this, where your attention becomes diverted from what you're trying to do musically, or, you know, and you feel like, wait, I've got to get the notes or something like that. And I was like, you know, just noticing that, or if you notice something feels uncomfortable, really looking for those sorts of things you know, in the course of it has been a really helpful way, I think, for them to find that sense of, you know, awareness and the sense of being deliberate in it, because by tuning into ourselves when we're doing it, I think we're very apt to to find out more that can be really helpful to us in achieving great results. Mm. Wow. I'm, I'm so glad you're both here because it reminds me of why we invited you, Susan, particularly for this topic. And I'm, I'm going to close with a kind of more simple model for myself. I would say for me, productive practice is something that you talked very clearly about, Susan, about some sense of progression towards your goals. Uh, but I would also say that we want to have the ability to let ourselves like deconstruct for a moment. In other words, some productive practice is actually going to feel kind of messy. And sometimes it might feel like we're backsliding a little bit. That still can be productive if we allow ourselves to have some little mini goals. So the larger purpose might be to get ready for an upcoming concert, for instance. But then we might on a particular day decide that uh, my practice today is is going to be to just really try some new things uh, expressively. And so that might mean you lose some things in terms of accuracy or other technical pursuits. Uh, but that if you are, again, deliberate practice is you're deciding what that mini goal is with that larger purpose in mind. But I think we all are agreeing that a sense of progress is going to help keep us motivated as well as help us get to that longer term goal or purpose. So 
Phew, we have a lot to say on this, don't we? <laughs> that is such a great point, Ariel. Well, that's why it's nice to have more than one point of view, right? We get to add <laughs> the sum of our parts here. <laughs> okay, so Susan, does your definition of productivity change relative to the student or the project at hand? Well, um, the definition doesn't change, but the goals will definitely be different. I mean, I work with a wide variety of students. I have singers at Curtis who are trying to attain a professional career. Um, I also work with beginning six-year-old piano students all the way up to, uh, you know, uh, professional level pianists and piano teachers. So, um, you know, just as an example for, for a beginner, um, working on Jingle Bells, which is happening right now. Um, <laughs> the ending is is very complicated. Um, you know, one horse open sleigh, that little skip between F and D. Um, it's it just confuses everybody. So that's you know we we just focus on on that. So we'll we'll do it once. Have them jump off the bench, take a walk, come back, do it again jump off the bench, come back and take it a walk, you know, take a walk, come back. Um, so each time away from the piano is a reset and mm. it's a bit of an effort to find one's place again. And that's effortful retrieval, but I don't tell them that. Um, and, in fact, <laughs> and besides they, they love jumping off the bench and they check in with their mom or dad but that activity becomes part of their assignment. And that is how they're uh, starting some deliberate practice. I've never heard that term before, Susan. You're kind of blowing my mind. Can you say a little bit more about effortful retrieval, please? Yes, um, effortful retrieval is a term that Anders Ericsson speaks of. Mm. It's when, as opposed to just, if you play a passage and you go over and over and over again, your brain really just has to figure out once what's happening. But if you stop that activity, huh. step away and try it again for the first time, the brain has to struggle a little bit huh. to, to get back to where you are. And that helps the learning become deeper. I, you're blowing my mind here. Clearly, I need to read this book. It is on a rather large stack of books that I'm meaning to get to. <laughs> so here we go, guys, learning in, in the moment here. Uh, because I, sorry, may I jump in? Sure. Because yeah. I'm fascinated that I instinctively use a similar practice when I'm working with musicians as an Alexander teacher. I will often watch them at their instrument with their instrument or singing whatever that is happening and then i'll take an idea that i want to work with but i'll take it out of the musical context so if they're a violinist i might you know have them pick up a water bottle i'll purposefully take them away from the stimulus in the context of music making to get the movement idea clear because i find but i do it for a different reason I do it because the musical stimulus is so strong and so strongly habituated that I want to get the patterning in in a more neutral or less loaded context. Then I plop that back into the musical context. So I ask them to pick up their violin again or sing that phrase again once I have the movement idea clear. So you're just adding a whole other layer about why that's helpful. Because the reason why I do it is because it's definitely practically useful. I see it being helpful and helps people connect the dots. But I didn't understand that whole other layer of the science about how it's working on more than one level. So boy, am I glad I showed up today. <laughs> but <laughs> Ryan, what do you want to chime in about this? Well, I would just say I'm going to be encouraging my students to jump off their benches more often. I think that's <laughs> that's a really wonderful <laughs> suggestion. And it's, I've you know, I've done other things in terms of trying to help them not to get stuck, you know, with doing the same thing over and over again. Because I think we all know that can kind of be a downward spiral if things aren't going so well. So I think I think that's just a really great way of like putting a very um, a very clear reset 
into the process that's just built in in a very positive way. And then, but they, you know, again, if they're six years old, they're probably not thinking about exactly what it is. But that idea is is so powerful and helpful for even students of, you know, at the very beginning levels. So that's just really exciting. And also, Ryan, this this topic and this sub question is reminding me of our earlier discussion about how do we attend to the student in front of us when we were talking about first lessons. And so I think that's a very appropriate discussion for this topic as well. Like, how do I cater, like Susan, what you were talking about that um, discomfort, like the going beyond what you're comfortable, mm -hmm. but like finding that range, like I call that just off your radar screen or just on your radar screen. If you go too far, right? then someone just is going to bail. They're going to give up. They're going to feel so defeated, right? So there's an art to finding that stretch zone, maybe I'll call it, right? That's could be a little bit uncomfortable, but is enough within reach that they're not so discouraged that they're just going to quit, right? Absolutely. And if there's a way to make it somewhat playful, that's also helpful <laughs> instead of just saying, this is hard. Um, that's that's one of the downsides of the book because he talks about how how hard it is and it's not fun and and you know maybe, but you know that which may be true but I think you can also you know approach it in um, you know with curiosity and and a sense of exploration. Mm. Amen, may I just say, and I need to quote my mentor Marge Barstow here if I can jump in again because Marge has a very favorite quote, which is, uh, we always move better with a smile. And there's some science to that. And yes, there's some science to making it playful and fun. We do learn better. So I have a funny feeling, Susan or Ryan, you can speak more directly to that science. Uh, but yeah, here, here for playful learning. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, smile, you know, fake it till you become it, I guess. There, <laughs> there are, yeah, there are scientific, um, you know, so, uh, studies that endorphins increase in your body when you smile, whether or not you're feeling the smile, even if it's, mm -hmm. so it does, it does help. <laughs> well, let's move on to the next question, which I think is super important, especially when we're talking about productive practice for musicians, mm. which is about deadlines. So the question is, how do deadlines um, defined by upcoming auditions or performances uh, alter or affect the process for productivity? So how do we alter our definition of success for productivity in relationship to those deadlines? Right. Well, um, you know, we have you know, so much of our technical training requires, you know, being in like a practice mindset. So we, we talk about having, you know, a practice mindset and then a performance mindset. Um, and, you know, the practice is element is, is when you're working and you're evaluating and you're judging. And, um, but when you have a performance coming up, you have to rely on a different set of skills. And a lot of that is not thinking and just try getting into the, the flow state. Um, so, mm -hmm. you know, when, when we prepare, um, for a performance, we want to be, you know, fully in, immersed in what we're doing, not thinking really about anything. Um, so one, one way we do like in, in coachings is a good, a good way to do that is to record yourself, um, because it's a way of just letting go and then evaluating after the fact. So, mm. um, and, and again, I would twist things around a little bit because like a common practice is to like warm up, practice and then record. But I would recommend like just a little warm up, then record where you're actually getting an accurate assessment and then, mm. um, then evaluate and that'll give you information and a practice plan, which you can then jump into. So then you're also testing what stuck from your last practice session. You know, in, a, in an opera production, um, singers have to sing kneeling, lying down, 
going from a squat to standing. So in our sessions, they practice their staging while they're singing too. Really? And, um, so, and that's a way to add variation to mm. um, the practice, which is a, an important element of learning. Mm. Oh, I love that. Susan, I especially love um, kind of taking the usual sequence, right? And flipping it around to really uh, make it fit the demands of preparing for performance. That's brilliant. I'm, I'm stealing it. Oh, so Brian, what if you I want to chime in here? Too. <laughs> <laughs> Still only the best, man. That's why we're doing a podcast. <laughs> Uh, I think I think that's wonderful. Um, it strikes me because I just know in my own experience of like trying to work on things and record, sometimes if I'm like really practicing beforehand, especially if there's a deadline as close at hand, I'm really like trying to make everything perfect and I really get into that mindset. So by, you know, doing exactly what you're suggesting by, you know, maybe having a brief warm up and then you know, jumping in and recording it right away, it helps to short circuit that kind of thinking, I think, you know, like when we're in practice mode, often we get in those kind of patterns. So by just kind of doing it, then, you know, evaluating it from the recording and then practicing, I think it definitely is a is a helpful way of, of moving forward with it. Mm. I have a little thing that I, oh, sorry, Susan. <laughs> oh, sorry, no, I was just gonna say that that emulates the act of performing too. <laughs> Exactly, which yes. is, um, I have this thing that I like to say to my students, which is when we're getting ready to perform, there's no checking in the rear view mirror. You're looking <laughs> at the, you aim and go. <laughs> no checking, aim, go is my little short quip. But as a dancer and choreographer, I had some rules uh, that changed when I got closer to performance. So when I was the choreographer for a group work, um, my rule was no stopping, uh, you know, the week or two weeks before a performance, like we don't get to stop anymore. This is a performance. Uh, you have to figure out how to keep going if your costume falls off or someone comes in at the wrong time. Like, so I would make this very conscientious shift. And as a solo performer, I got to a point where I only wanted to rehearse with people in the room because I realized what I needed to rehearse was performing, exactly. right? And so I also used recording quite a bit. And as an Alexander teacher at a music conservatory, what I often do with my students is help them shift again, no checking <laughs> the evaluation. It's interesting that there's a thread we're all, right? That the evaluation has to stop, right? You have to just go into performance mode. And so there's a few tricks of the trade I use there. One I stole from my colleague, Kathy Madden, who puts it so poetically, I'm gonna use her words, which is you invite your future audience to be with you so that you can be with them. Oh, so the idea is that you're not practicing to the piano, you're not practicing to the score or the violin, you put imaginary people in the room with you. And I've had my students use stuffed animals or pictures of loved ones. I'll use any trick I can do. But the idea is that you very mindfully, purposefully aim that you are playing for people. The purpose of performance is a generous act to share so to me, that is a very key component to productive practice, because a lot of times people leave that out. They practice to practice. And I'm like, no, 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 no. That longer arc, that purpose is to share. So I find that very uh, critical thing. And so my favorite thing to do with musicians to prepare before an audition or performance is to help them get really comfortable with the start of each excerpt or each piece or each movement. So we just, we practice walking into the room. We practice the bow, right? So that they have that constructive plan in those moments, because Susan, once the music starts, they're in flow mode. Mm -hmm. So I get them to use their constructive thinking for that really great start. Cause we all as performers know that feeling. If we start well, it's so much easier to keep it going. So that's, those are the moments I like uh, to help refine in that final ramp up to performance or audition yeah we had a lot to say didn't we wow that's really something to take to heart the sharing idea that's so mm. beautiful mm. and yeah. starting and starting is is such a critical moment as well um bill moore who's a, a performance psychologist at the university of oklahoma 
has um, different, well, he has a performance uh, mastery script that he has people write, but part of that is called Starting Strong. And that's exactly what you're talking about. Um, that that's, it's so important to, you know, to be in the mindset as you're walking out before, when you're backstage, what's happening backstage, what's happening as you're walking on, how are you experiencing this? Exactly. So Wonderful. Mm. What are the ways that we as teachers can help a student identify their own progress? Well, in my case, for sure, um, instead of always instructing, um, to ask a lot of questions, mm. you know, especially with, with young pianists. Um, of course, you have to be patient and wait for the responses because they're not used to that too, especially some teenage boys, which is like, uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> True. We're all giggling. I had a teenage boy here last night. That's a the, the giggle oh. of knowing. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Sorry. But um, but it's so worth it once they once they do start to engage in their own process. Um, you know, just like for instance, what's your favorite part to play? And like um Ryan was saying. Where do you feel confident? Where do you feel maybe uncomfortable? Um, you know, what practice strategy could help that? What's happening in the storyline? Uh, what is your character experiencing? What do you want to convey? Just get them thinking in, in all parameters. Because um, I want them, as we said, we want to learn to practice expressively from the beginning so mm -hmm. that they get beyond just the, the notes and the rhythm. Um, Pam Frank, the violinist, um, has some thoughts regarding practice. And she says, practice safely and mechanically, and that's how you'll perform. Mm. Be engaged physiologically, practice with full communication, with 1,000% expression. So, <laughs> you know, often people separate the learning, you know, <sighs> the learning of the text, and then implementing expression afterwards so you know why not integrate them you know practice the way you want to perform mm -hmm. in the beginning you get a lot of knowing nods here yes <laughs> <laughs> i have a funny way that i talk about this i always like to i have my cheesy way of getting to those points and so i say if you wait and i i have found the exact same thing susan i could not agree more um and this is where sometimes being an outsider is super helpful. And I say to musicians, oh, if you wait, if you just, no, I just have to learn the music first. My students will say, I just have to learn the music first. Then I'll be expressive. And I go, that's a little bit like putting icing on a hot cake that it's just going to slide right <laughs> off. I said, let's put the expressivity, let's bake it into the cake, please. Oh, and it's always with you. So that's my little simple way. But that is a strong habit in my experience with musicians to yes. want to do that sequence. So in a funny way, Susan, this reminds me of what you said earlier about switching the order of the expected order, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. So interesting yeah. what can happen when we're willing to shuffle the cards a little bit. But Ryan, what, what do you have to say about this? Oh, well, I love what both of you all have already suggested. I think those are great ideas. The thing that I have found sometimes that I that often can help students is sometimes students, you know, depending on what their experience and, and background is, they're very much used to thinking that the only kind of uh, thing that can happen that's really progress is when they get something perfect all the way through as the as they experience it. So mm -hmm. for me, one thing that I really think makes a big difference is to really like every single little thing that I'm hearing and seeing that's going really well, even if other things aren't going so well, I'm celebrating that with them, you know, all the way through, like every time they do it, this is great. And so I'm trying to help them mm -hmm. by doing that. I'm not trying to waste time in the lesson. I'm trying to help them start to see, oh, okay, there are like, in terms of getting to that bigger goal, there are smaller, manageable, actual mm -hmm. steps that I can do that are going to help me to get there. And when I achieve one of those little steps, I'm also getting closer to my goal. So by celebrating that and helping them to see that, I think that can be a helpful way of helping them to like really see and start to own their progress and also 
you know, we're talking about practice here. I think it can encourage them to practice in a certain way because it's achieving what they're wanting, even in small ways, starts to become a very tangible thing, even if they're not yet at the point where they're able to do the whole piece all the mm. way through. Ryan, I'm so glad you added that in. That really seems a key component. And I've noticed this myself in my teaching practice, and, I, and I'm pretty cheesy about it, about celebrating success. Because what I have found is that musicians are most often perfectionists. I relate well. And so what happens is something will go better, but my student is so fixated on the thing that didn't go well that they miss the fact that something actually progressed. So if we go back to that definition of productive practice as having some sense of progression, they'll completely be blind to the progression because they're so focused on the one thing that didn't go well. And so I'm trying to model all the time, like, wait a minute, something just went well. And so I have a practice with my students when they ask them, how did that go? Sometimes, especially if I recognize this perfectionism in a student, I'll say, you have to tell me one thing that went well first. <laughs> you have to do that first. So that's another change of order, right? It's like, well, it was okay, but right, they're so anxious to get to the thing that wasn't good. I'm like, no, no, no. I want you to know what went well because it's easier to build on success when you know how you did what you did. It's easier to repeat the success if you take a moment, not just to like pat yourself on the back, but know that you actually accomplished some progress and how did you get that? So super important, I think. That is very important. Yeah. Yeah. With my piano students, I just try to um, emphasize from the beginning that the most important thing is to keep going when you're performing, you know, and if you, if you kept going, that's great. It's a victory. And, uh, and now, now it's like, what's the most important thing? Keep going. <laughs> respond. Um, yeah. And another thing that, you know, we like to say is that it's live music and that's what happens. And, you know, that, that's just, it's something for them to expect. And, you know, even, you know, because even at a very early level, kids get into this, I need to play every note correctly, which is mm. really tough um, and not a fun way of thinking about music. No, it's like a tyranny of perfectionism that's, yeah. that really takes the joy and the expressivity out of it. So I think for me too, there's another key component, which, um, and I think it can be more subtle sometimes, but, but I think we've been touching about, upon this idea that by asking our student what their goals are, or by asking our students more questions about what do you hear in this music, what do you like in this music, is that we're really trying to get the student to define progress and productivity. Because if it's always thinking you have to match up to someone else's idea, right? That it needs to, all the notes need to be perfect, right? I need to be memorized. All those outside expectations, if you keep asking our students what's important to you, we're putting them in the driver's seat. That changes the dynamic in a huge way. And so um, I have a funny feeling the two of you might have other ways to describe that. But yes, getting the students to decide what's important. A lot of them are very uncomfortable and confused when, when we suggest that. At least that's my experience. Yeah, it, it is. Um, but once, the, you know, once they get engaged in it, I think you know, they, they come on board. But I, I think they're just not used to it. They're used to you know, just sort of being told what to do. Um, you know, sometimes I've, I've had some, some students where you know, once I start talking, I think they just kind of like start zoning out. <laughs> You know? And so, so in order to engage them, you have to ask, you know, and then I'll know because if I'll, I'll ask a question and I'm not getting a response and it's like, hello. Oh, what? Um, you know? So, um, you know, that's a lesson to me, uh, too, to just, you want to involve them in, in the decisions and the choices that they're making. Yeah, I'm having this thought that's creeping in, which is that I'm wondering if some of my students um, 
think they need to be neutral so that the conductor or the director can kind of imprint how that music is going to be played. And I would argue that if you practice that way, you have nothing to say. And so that you should practice having something to say with the flexibility to be influenced by who you're playing with and for and being directed by. Does that make sense to you? Yes, it does. And you're absolutely right. Um, and I know there, there are several students that I work with who, who feel that way. And at the same time, the conductors and directors totally, almost unanimously prefer that, that people come with their own ideas because then they can have something to work with. And it's so much easier for them. Uh, sometimes it's hard to convince the student that 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 is indeed the case mm -hmm. but it's also easier for them I think once if they have a point of view to just alter it a little bit instead of like coming from no point of view yeah it reminds me of that law of physics about momentum and inertia mm. it's harder to get an object to move if it's not moving and once it's in motion right Exactly. I can't quote that law, but I think I got the gist of it correctly. Yes. <laughs> Here's a fun question. Uh, how can we as teachers model productivity? Hmm. So I, I think we, I, I think we've covered, you know, a couple of examples. Um, you know, all of my students have already been in school and they've learned, you know, traditional study habits and, like, you know, with blocked practice, which is, you know, you, you do your math and then you put it away and then you, you do your reading and then you put that away. Um, so, um, you know, what I'll assign my students is to, you know, to practice at home is let's say they, they have three passages that they're working on. So instead of working on passage A for 15 minutes and then B for 15 minutes and then C, we'll, um, we'll vary it. We'll, we'll do the retrieval or random practice, practice three minutes of A, three minutes or, you know, B, three minutes of C, and then complete that cycle three or four times. And they're used, they have the same, you're using the same amount of time, but they're just really um, getting more, they're, they're getting more challenged because, you know, the, again, the brain has to struggle a little bit to get that new information. So, um, you know, and it feels harder, but it's effective. Um, I also have students like close their eyes while they're playing, look at the ceiling while they're playing for uh, variation, um, cover their hands. I have this 11 year old who's all, always given her father side eye when I, <laughs> it's usually when I'm saying something that he may have suggested at home. <laughs> He's just like, <laughs> it's like, she just loves him right away. So I'll just say, okay, give your father side eye and play this passage. <laughs> That's adorable. <laughs> I love creative teachers. I have to say, you're going to get a round of applause for me, Susan. Ryan, I think what you were talking about earlier really rings true for me about modeling productivity by identifying and applauding your students' success in the course of the lesson, right? That's modeling a kind of productive productivity to recognize when they're achieving what they've set out to do. Um, and I think also um, we've talked a lot about asking our students a lot of questions, I think, is modeling productivity too. And um, for me, I would say there's a couple of key things is that I'm not just wanting them to recognize, like you said, getting through the whole piece or, or getting through it accurately. Um, so I'll often make sure that I recognize uh, someone allowed themselves to not do it the habitual way. So even if it doesn't work particularly well, I make like a really big point of, wow, that was really cool. I saw you navigating a new thought process in that moment so that I'm not just applauding the outcome. I'm making sure I recognize the process. Mm. Uh, in Alexander Technique, we call that the means whereby. And so for me, that's an important thing to model 
about productivity is that I'm modeling the success of the of the attempt of the experiment. Oh, you were willing to experiment, and that by a, I'm hoping in that moment to kind of support sometimes that discomfort of the wonkiness of trying something new because it doesn't usually get sorted out perfectly and integrated completely successfully consistently uh, in in a minute and probably not in an hour and possibly not even in a week so part of what i'm modeling is is cheerleading the curiosity and the willing to experiment and and helping my students understand that it may take a little while right for that new habit to kind of have enough teeth to be reliable and and just to say do it the way you know how if you have a gig tonight do it the way you know how like that's fine mm -hmm. but again showing them and modeling the success of the experiment the willingness to experiment not even the outcome of the experiment how about you, Ryan? Did you chime in yet on this? Oh, no, I was just thinking that the idea of um, really, you know, doing what you were both suggesting with sort of helping the students to become really engaged in the process of it as, you know, as sort of the process as the primary um, thing to be attentive to, you know, because obviously I think we're often, you know, importantly very much interested in okay where is this progressing to what is the the product that we're aiming for but i think when we really you know model that fascination with the process and the way we engage in it i think we really i think that's really the place where we can make the most difference in our own you know playing and teaching is like when okay the process element because the process is ultimately what's going to produce you know whatever we're going to put on stage or whatever so i would say really just kind of digging in there you know and letting that kind of be the focus because i think in a certain way that's the area where the most productive and creative things can really you know take shape in a way that then yields the performance that we would like to see Wow, that's really beautifully stated. It is. I feel like you just described Alexander's discoveries in very succinctly. Like that's kind of what Mr. Alexander was getting at. Mm -hmm. That if you don't pay attention to the means of how you're getting somewhere, you have much less control over the outcome. If you're only focusing on the outcome, it doesn't really work out so well. So, so yay, Ryan, for re redefining the means whereby. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, so are there other elements that impact productivity? Ariel, you talk about the concept called unified field of attention for musicians. How does this, how does that tie into practice habits? Mm, well, you were talking about it earlier, right? This, this way that we notice, um, I especially notice it when my students are practicing and something doesn't go well. And Susan, you were talking about this too. That the, that the habit I most commonly see is they kind of dig in and repeat over and over and over again. It looks like battle to me, physically. It looks mentally and physically looks like battle. There's a lot of tightening. There's a lot of narrowing of attention and this kind of like, I'm gonna get it. Like I'm gonna beat it up and get it, beat it into shape. <laughs> and I have long recognized that that usually doesn't go so well, that, that What's interesting to me is that I think that strategy is being used to really like directly attack the problem and to efficiently move through it. And I question whether that's actually what's going on. As a matter of fact, I'm pretty sure that's not what actually happens. And so um, asking my students, I call it zooming out, <clears throat> which to me means literally stepping back. Uh, back in the days before we had cameras that we could you know, use our fingertips to change the focus. If we wanted to get a wider view, we literally had to step back a few steps to get a wider view. And I mean that with all of our senses so that our sensory mechanism actually works physiologically better when it's orchestrated so that we notice what we see in the room. We notice we can do it right now as we're doing this podcast. We can notice not just the screen, but what's behind the screen. And we can notice what's to the sides of us peripherally. 
and we can kind of turn on our echo location and know there's space above and behind us, even if we're not looking at those spaces. We can feel our feet on the floor, our seat in the chair. And that starts to change our whole coordination when we just open up our sensory mechanism and don't clamp it down in this battle mode, right? Because we don't want to fight music. We want to play music. I like to remind my students. And so um, to me, that's a very effective tool to know what you're paying attention to. And instead of narrowing in, we zoom out, or sometimes I call that connecting out, which makes a lot of sense with productive practice, because again, what's the aim is to share the music. You're not playing it for you. You're not playing it for your violin. You're playing it for a potential audience. So that opening our sensory mechanism literally makes you more ready to perform and share. Hmm. That is so amazing. Yeah, that that is just really everything that I would want to do. <laughs> <laughs> as, as well this whole idea of open focus I mean I guess all I could really add to that would be um, is to set yourself up for success by starting the practice maybe by closing your eyes just taking like a gentle deep breath and tell yourself what you plan to do um, what you plan to accomplish for the session then maybe work for you know, 30 minutes and then take a break. I, I think what's also being, you know, found to be really helpful is taking many breaks during the day and short, you know, with short sessions. Because, you know, to keep this openness, um, you know, it's good, we'll start. And then as we work, you know, like Arielle said, you start getting tighter and tighter and more focused and more narrowly focused. So the opportunity to, you know, to take a break is, is an opportunity to just to re reclaim that, that openness. It's a beautiful reminder, Susan. Absolutely. Uh -huh. Yeah, I would completely concur with both of you on that. I think that's such a, a beautiful concept and I do think it makes a big difference. You know, toward, sort of toward what Susan was saying, even if I'm very much aware, okay, I'm starting out really well, I'm aware of, you know, kind of letting everything, my focus be pretty open. Sometimes just over time, you know, our, our ability to do that atrophies as we're engaged in whatever it is that we're in. So I think just keeping that in mind can be really helpful, especially when we're already aware that that's what we're, you know, hoping to allow for and, you know, practice anyway, just realizing that, hey, you know, because of our humanness and our limitations in a sense, by taking those breaks, it allows for that refresh that really can do such wonders for us. You know, I'm just realizing that it's those taking breaks, I'm so mindful to make sure if I have a student that's injured to remind them of that. Mm. Because this is a crucial thing if you're dealing with an injury to find a practice amount of time that's within the range of comfort and pain-free uh, that, that you, which takes a lot of discipline. If you need to practice more and you can only practice 10 minutes at a time, that takes a lot of finagling to find 10 minute blocks in your day interspersed. And I'm so conscientious to talk about that with injured students. And I'm sitting here and realizing it's just as important, even if you're not injured. Um, and I, I love to tell this story. It has nothing to do with making music, uh, but I did an experiment with myself that I love to share with my students about tax time preparation because I am self-employed and this is my least favorite task of the year. And it takes quite a bit of time. And I often get pretty frustrated trying to find the different receipts and the different numbers and the compiling of information and it's not my favorite. So one year I decided to do an experiment because even the thought of preparing my tax information was stressing me out. And I noticed I was holding my breath, I was tightening myself. And I thought, hmm, that's so interesting. I talked to my students about interrupting that cycle of pattern of interference all the time. So I devised a little experiment. 
And this was the experiment. I made a little pact with myself that I would only work on my taxes for as long as I was comfortable and not getting frustrated. And that if that meant I worked on it for two minutes, that's how long I would work on it. And if that meant a half hour, that's how long I would work on them. That I would not decide ahead of time how far I would get into the process. I would not decide how long I was going to work on the process. My pact with myself was that I had to feel comfortable and not too frustrated. Please fill in the blank every time I say work on the process of getting my taxes. I mean practice, yes? Well, would you know, I got my taxes ready in half the time that year. <laughs> shocking. I mean, I had an educated guess that it would be helpful, right? I had an educated guess that would be helpful. The results shocked me about, and I really did. Some days, 10 minutes was all I got. And I started getting frustrated. I was like, okay, you're done. Half the time. So if we filled in the blank, and if anyone listening to this podcast is willing to do that experiment with practice, especially about memorization, I want, please email us. <laughs> What's our email address? I'm forgetting. Pedagogygeeks at gmail.com. Mm, I want to hear from people if that are willing to do, I'm challenging you to do that experiment with practice and tell me how it goes. Tell us how it goes. <laughs> That's brilliant. <laughs> True story. I'm not making it up. And very timely for this day. You know, I'm just thinking, oh yeah, the taxes. <laughs> so hey, you heard it here. Tax advice that's not we're not CPAs, but we can give you hints. <laughs> oh. Yep. Yep. <laughs> well, moving right along, I have another question. And my question is about. What are some common misconceptions about practicing that you've encountered? Susan, can I throw that one to you? Well, the big one is more is better. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, you know, oh yeah, which is, which is only true to the extent that you're working with intention. Um, and furthermore, studies have shown that like four to five hours a day is like the absolute maximum realistic limit for practice. Um, because after that, your body needs rest and sleep and rejuvenation on like a neurological level. Um, it needs to clean out the whatever um, beta amyloid proteins that, okay, Ooh. you know, it, it, they have to, you know, clean out and that inhibits cognitive capacity. And, um, you know, your body has to, it needs to replenish the storage of myelin, which is the stuff that, that memories are made of and all learning is memory. So, so pushing yourself beyond four or five hours is counterproductive, you know? I mean, that in itself is an important reason to strive for effective practice because we just can't spend the whole day, um, even if we want to, because beyond a certain point, it's, it's just a waste of time. Um, so yeah, <clears throat> that's one. Um, and the, the second one is like, according to conventional wisdom and, um, a lot of study skill courses, like you should have a specific quiet study spot and, you know, where you get all your work done. Um, but research shows just the opposite that like students who had, um, had to study a, a list of 40 vocabulary words, um, in two different rooms one was like cluttered with no windows and the other one was like spacious and it had a view of a courtyard um, they did far better on a test than students who studied the the words in the same place um, and that's um, that finding has been confirmed in a variety of, of topics so that's very interesting um, you know once the, like if the outside context is varied then you know the information is, is enriched and it slows down forgetting so that's another example of vary of varied practice and now granted for pianists that's like a difficult thing to achieve if you're <laughs> uh, if you have access to only one piano but it's really valuable because unless you're Christian Zimmerman or Andras Schiff who carry their pianos around with them when do you play your home piano in a performance, right? So, um, mm. you know, so if you're in a music school, check out different 
practice rooms. If you have access to a church or a community center that has a piano, um, you know, or a friend with a piano, take advantage of that. Again, yeah. it's getting out of your comfort zone and, and varying your practice. Oh, I love that, Susan. Hmm. So that's what, what I've got in terms of myths. <laughs> hmm. What's kind of coming up for you, Brian? I would say that that's really covered it for me. And I, I just wish that I had known about, you know, the four or five hour, you know, cap when I was an undergrad, because I was, you know, thinking I was being such a good student practicing eight or nine hours a day, you know, and all of this, and it really wasn't getting me very far because of the way I was practicing. But you know, it's, it's just so important. And I think, just in our culture, you know, the idea of, you know, we're going to work hard, we're going to, you know, achieve something is very strong. And in many ways, that can be a helpful thing. But I think we also have to really listen to the wisdom that's out there that can help us to better set um, more effective, you know, caps on that and really define how we're doing it. Because I think, you know, as Susan had mentioned about um, Anders Ericsson's book, you know, there there's a lot of things that go into determining what is going to make this effective. It's not just the 10,000 hours. It's how you're using that time. Exactly. Yeah. yeah and I think along with longer is better is harder is better. Mm. And so that ah. people start to associate actual psychological and physical strain as better practice. Mm. So they actually squeezing, you know, I always get this question. Um, excuse me. I get the, picture of a little kid with a pencil grasping a pencil and biting their tongue and getting told good job because they're working hard oh. right that we we literally are raised with this assumption that tightening ourselves works better and that might even mean kind of like torturing yourself like i made myself practice right it's not just how long it's how hard right mm -hmm. so that reimagining productive practice to be joyous and enjoyable and expressive as the leading thing, right? That That's kind of a radical idea. But I think the myth isn't just longer. I think Carter's right up there as a contender. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Ryan, how have you observed your own practice habits developing over time? Do you have any particular formative experiences that come to mind? I mean, I was one of these people growing up, my parents had to tell me to stop practicing the piano because I would just be delighted. I would be improvising. I would be practicing, doing everything. Just be, they'd be like, please go outside, play, do something and just stop playing the piano, practicing the piano. So I would say, you know, so parents, first of all, be thankful if your child is not practicing that much because it, it can be a lot. But second of all, I would just say, you know, I really wish that I had known sooner about the idea of what makes practice really effective and what how to cap that, you know, and how to, you know, take breaks, how to, you know, how to really manage that well. And I would say for me, you know, encountering the Taubman approach and then subsequently Alexander technique and, you know, sort of the connection between those things have really helped me a lot also with looking at you know different research in neuroscience and various other things that contribute to how we learn and really looking into those things has been very helpful for me as i've um you know continue to reshape my practicing habits and, and and the way that that informs my teaching so i would say it's a combination for me but i would say all of those things have been helpful and i just wish i had known about some of them sooner what about mm -hmm. for you well, for me, uh, at the, the end of my performing career as a solo dance artist, I think I mentioned earlier that I really shifted my practice. Um, all of my rehearsals, I invited people to come. And I used to videotape all of my rehearsals so that I really shifted the emphasis to performance and to responding in a moment in real time, like a conversation between my choreography and the purpose, which was to share it. So that was a pretty big shift for me in, in how I shifted the purpose of my practice. But what about for you, Susan? Well, I would echo what Ryan said. Um, 
<laughs> in, in all of those elements. Um, and, you know, the most central being, um, you know, I was, I was playing a lot of uh, contemporary brass and piano repertoire, which was, if you know any of that piano <laughs> pieces are really gnarly. And um, in particular, this uh, trumpet sonata of Peter Maxwell Davies, which is like seven minutes of flying octaves and irregular rhythms and all this kind of stuff. And I could do it, but like when it came to um, the performance or a competition, um, it just went off the rails. And I thought, you know, I, I should be able to play this better. And uh, serendipity, um, I Dorothy Taubman was brought to Philadelphia by the Philadelphia Music, Music Teachers Association. And um, you know, I'll refrain from the Brooklyn accent, but um, but she st stated that if you weren't playing the way you wanted to play, it wasn't because you weren't talented, and it or it wasn't because you were pra weren't practicing enough, and um, you know you were missing some movements in your playing. And I had never heard anything like that before, and so I was like, "Yeah, sign me up." <laughs> mm. And um, and that was you know my introdu introduction to how the quality of my movements, um, you know, affected my, the pianistic results. And it was transformative in terms of how mm. we practice. And then, um, you know, with the well-balanced pianist, we've been, um, you know, seeking all sorts of different parameters too, with learning and, and mindset and body work. And that has all, you know, informed my playing. And again, I wish I had known about it sooner as well, but I'm so happy now that I do. Mm. How beautifully put. Boy, that feels like we're coming in for a landing, doesn't it? What are good guidelines to help our students assess their individual capacity for practice and determining how much they can realistically expect to achieve at a given time? Yeah. You know, I, I don't know if I have a good answer to that. Um, <laughs> I think I think we need to understand the nature of skill acquisition. And Ariel, you touched on this, that it's not linear you know it's it it's characterized by these long plateaus of practice mm. and then you'll get a little bump in competence and then you'll be on another plateau mm. and then another bump in in achievement you know so it it takes the time it takes um it's so individual it just you know it takes a lot of patience um and i think ryan you said too to we have to learn the process learn to love the process, you know, because that's where we spend the majority of our, of our time. And, you know, just approach it with curiosity and a, a sense of exploration. I think that's beautiful. And I would just add in that commitment to the process, but also reminding people that they, that they like sharing music and that they like music and that they enjoy playing music <laughs> that a lot of times I find that gets squeezed out of my students. They're, they're so focused on getting it right and just bringing them back to that, those joyous factors, right? In the context of why they're doing this. Oh, right. You like music, right? <laughs> Asking them what they like about that piece, right? Even if it's really, really hard, like, Ooh, what's fun about that challenge? Like really trying to redirect them and get them back into that. That's almost another component of unified field of attention or awareness, right? It's getting back in the context of the purpose of that music making, right? Which is not to be perfect. So I would like to add that. Yeah, I would say I am delighted by both of your answers. It's, this is a question that I've always, I feel like I've been grappling with it for a long time because it seems like on one hand, a, a question that like, you know, cause students will often ask, well, how, how, how long before I can, you know, do this or that? And it's the kind of question that when I get, it's the sense when I get that question where I'm like, okay, I understand like from a very logistical point of view why you'd ask that because in so many other pursuits that we have, you know, it's it can be fairly easy to say, well, in general, it might take about this long to do this. But with sometimes what, you know, with like learning an instrument or singing a song or something, there can be a different, like it seems like the skill acquisition is so multifaceted that 
there's just so much that goes into it and it varies so much from person to person in terms of how quickly it's acquired. So I would also say that I haven't found a really, you know, concrete way of, of saying, oh, well, this is the formula. You plug this in, then do this. And okay, then you've got the perfect answer. It will take you four years, three months, 62 days and five seconds. I mean, you know, we, we wish we could give those kinds of answers, but as of yet, we haven't figured it out. So if someone is who is listening has fit, determined that formula, write to us. We'd love to hear about it. So yeah, it's again. I would say it's very it's a very interesting question and one that I I would be curious. I'm going to be curious to see over the next you know however many years if what insights science and other things may may yield in that regard. If there are certain underlying things that maybe we haven't considered yet. But I also think it's important to root ourselves in the this art of refinement that's ongoing and doesn't have an end, right? Our capacity yes. for refinement is limitless. That's the good news. Right. If you set that as the bad news that you're not good enough yet, you're going to be miserable. And if you understand that our capacity for expressivity and artistry and integration is limitless, then the more refinement, the more fun you get to have. I made a new word last year, funness, right? Funness. The more refinement, I get to have more fun. I get to enjoy the music more. I get to enjoy the process more. So that's like changing, like that reminds me of that changing the order, right? It's like, oh, right. The further I take this, right, the more refinement, the more I have to say, the more I get to enjoy it, the more my, I get to connect with an audience, all those things. So again, redefining the context goes a long way, doesn't it? Oh, that is so great. You both have given me so much to think about. <laughs> I know. I feel like we could go on forever. This was a rich topic. And boy, Susan, I just want to, again, my our sincere yes. appreciation. We picked the right guest for the right topic. It was like <laughs> alchemy today. So I just want to give a special thank you again. Oh, well, it's been great just listening and talking and, and just being with you both. So thank you for the invitation. Mm -hmm. Thank you for joining us today and exploring how we think about teaching and learning. We'd love to hear your experiences and questions about how embodiment and mindset impacts your music making. Send us your ideas for future episodes and, and you can email us with those ideas and any questions you may have at pedagogygeeks at gmail.com. Thanks for listening.